Now, Lord, my prayer is that it would be all of you and none of me. You would increase as I decrease. That the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight. Oh, Lord, you are my strength. You are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Welcome. Welcome again. Welcome. Listen, we need to give a warm thanks again to Mr. Michael Cowan, who is just a gem. Wonderful. Thank you, brother. I, and the only thing I didn't like about what happened just then was his mic wasn't on. <laughs> I sure wish his mic would have been on, but, but it may be a good idea that it wasn't because I don't know if I could have held my peace. So thank you again, Brother Michael, and the worship team. Thank you so much for being, being so flexible and willing to be that way. We know that what we're doing is not easy, and because of that, all of us are required to be a little more flexible than what we're used to. And so we thank God for just everybody having the spirit of doing that. We thank God for that. Listen, there is a word today as we continue in our series in the book of Romans. We have arrived at, a, at Romans chapter 3 uh, today, and that's where we are. Uh, and so we'll pick up there. Uh, let me say to you, though, as we, before we do that, let me say to you this thing. Tell you a little bit about uh, myself and some of the things that um, I've been interested in. I've always been fascinated by attorneys, lawyers. Have always, I know some of y'all say, why in the world would you be, it's just, it's just me. I, since a child, I've always been, a fast, been fascinated by attorneys, so much so that I, uh, before the Lord called me to preach, my dream was to somehow, someday, I couldn't figure out how I was going to do it, but somehow, some way, someday, Kevin, I figured that I'd figure out a way, even in my older years, that I was going to be a lawyer somehow. I was fascinated with, with, with that, and I, I used to do weird things like go to the courthouse and just sit in on trials. I used to, some of y'all laugh, like, why would you? It was just something that fascinated me. I'd just go and sit in and watch. Didn't have anything to do with it because it fascinated me. Three of my favorite TV shows growing up. Now, this is going to date me a little bit, but, but three of my favorite TV shows growing up were Perry Mason. Somebody say amen to that. Don't make me feel old. Matlock. Come on now. And some of y'all are not going to know this one, but Quincy. Uh-oh. Now, y'all really dating yourself. Now, here's the thing. Quincy wasn't a lawyer. Quincy was actually a medical examiner, but if you watch the program, you would think that because of the way he operated, because he was always in the courtroom, you would think that Quincy was actually a lawyer. Those, those programs were my favorites as, as I was growing up. Uh, 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 Cynthia, you know, you know what it is that fascinates me about attorneys? Uh, that, 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 that's one thing that, that grabbed me. It, it's this, it's watching them operate in the courtroom. I've always just been, been fascinated by that. It's always been quite interesting to me to watch somebody like Perry Mason or Matlock or Quincy as they captured the minds and commanded the attention of the jurors while giving their riveting and compelling closing arguments. 
with such passion and precision. It's just always done something to me to watch that. Even today, I like law and order. You know, I watch all them crime programs. I just like that kind of stuff. It, 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 it interests me uh, because I like to see those professionals operate in their, in their profession. Uh, it's a proven fact that, that in a trial or in a court of law, cases are often won or lost in the closing argument or what's known as the summation. It is an extremely important part of any trial strategy because it is what the jury, the jury hears right before they adjourned, adjourned uh, for, for deliberations. It, it's the last thing on their mind. It's the last thing they have to think about before they go in to make a decision. Not just the jury, but also the, the people like me <laughs> who's sitting in the audience. It's the last thing you, in the courtroom you hear before that happens is the closing argument. Uh, the past few weeks in Romans has been pretty tough. Would y'all agree? It's been pretty tough. I mean, as somebody once said, uh, it's tight, but it's right. And Romans over the course of the last few weeks has been tight. It make you sit kind of tight in your seat. Kind of make you, make you leave here feeling a little different, a little weird. Like, I don't know if I was excited about that or if I'm feeling convicted. It's been a little tough over the last few weeks in Romans. It's been that way. Uh, but if the same person said it's tight, if it's tight, it's right. They said if you can take it, you can make it. Right? And so I think, I think it's a good thing. Uh, this is the case. It's been tough. It's been tight over the last few weeks of Romans because the last few weeks of Romans has focused primarily uh, on the first point of the gospel, the first point of the good news, the first point of the gospel. And the first point of the good news is the bad news of the human condition. That's the first point of the good news. Before you, do, before you get to the good news, you've got to deal with the bad news. And here it is. I wish I could tell you that it gets better today. But unfortunately, it doesn't get any better today. It's still tight. It's still tight where we are today. But what I can say is this. Uh, first thing is that I can tell you is that brighter news is on the way soon. Because we're almost to the place in the gospel in 321 through 31 where Paul going to talk about the grace of God and how we, can, how we can acquire the righteousness of God. We're almost there. In fact, if you come back next Sunday, it's going to get a little looser. It's not going to be as tight. It, 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 so that's one thing I can assure you is that we're almost to that point, to the, to, the, to the brighter news. Brighter news is on the way. But then the second thing I can say to you is that today's text from Romans chapter 3 serves as Paul's summation or closing argument for the case that he has already presented in chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 8. This is his grand moment. This is his Perry Mason moment where he's going to tell you all about what he just told you in 118 through 3.8. This is, so that means he's at the end of that section, right? So that ought to, that ought to brighten your spirits a little bit to know that uh, we're not going to have to hear a whole lot more of this kind of stuff because Paul's wrapping it up today. In fact, a good title for today's message would be this, Paul's Summation of the Human Condition. That'd be a good title if I chose to use one. I think I will. I think I'll just go with that one. Paul's summation uh, in the spirit of Matlock. Paul's summation of 
the human condition. You all know, you do all know that we have this condition that we suffer from. Paul has told us about it in the last few weeks. He's summing it up today. Unlike Matlock, Perry Mason, or Quincy, though, Paul is not trying to win a case. He's not trying to, to convince a jury. He's not trying to convince a judge. He's not, that's not his purpose. But rather, he's trying to drive home a point regarding the sinfulness of man, the condition of humanity. That's what Paul is doing in his summation. He's trying to, to, to bring home this point that he's been on since chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 18 through 3.8, he has just charged that both the immoral and moral pagans are condemned before God. You remember how he did it? He, taught, he gave that long list in chapter 1 of things that we was, when we read it, we said, man, I don't do any of that. But then he got to chapter 2 and he said, yeah, what I, those things I was talking about in chapter 1, that applies to you. Because you're judging people that are doing it, but you're doing the same thing. Right? And, then he, and, and so he does that. He, he, he charged uh, both the immoral and moral pagans that, that they were condemned before God. He also, he doesn't leave out the religious folks because he also charged that in the same way both the moral and immoral Jew as well is condemned before God. Now we come to his closing argument for these charges. Certainly, as we look at this, I'd like to remind you as I just said, that this is not a court setting. This is not a trial setting. Uh, but Paul's summation that he makes, coming up in a minute, actually includes many of the elements that the American Bar Association says are necessary for an effective closing argument. Can I give you a few of them? And you just see, as we get to, as we get to what Paul says, see if some of this... Uh, this is not a trial. This is not a court, but some of it fits. Watch this. The, the ABA says, first thing you got to do if you're going to have a successful and an effective closing argument is you got to prepare the outline of your closing argument before your opening statement. In other words, you've already got to be ready for the close before you get to the open. And Paul does this in chapter 1, 18 through 3, 8. He's preparing himself for what he's getting ready to say in 3, 9 through 20. He's done that. The American Bar Association says the second thing you got to do is you got to condense your argument. You've got to put it all in a neat box at the end so that you don't have to take everybody through the whole thing. You've got to say everything you want to say in a few words. You're going to see in a minute Paul does that. Then they say you've got to know which points to emphasize in your closing argument. This is a natural explanation for how natural attorneys argue in their clothes, right? You've got to know which points. To emphasize, we're gonna see in a minute. Paul does that as well. Uh, then they say, other thing you gotta do is you gotta use the evidence. Don't don't veer off course. Don't pull in things that are not uh, 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 apply that don't apply to the case. Use the evidence before. And Paul is going to use the evidence that he has. Then they say that you've got to cast yourself as a steward. So what they mean by that is you've got to convince the jury that despite serving as the attorney for one side, you are merely a steward of the facts who is searching for the truth. That's what Paul is. He's just a steward of the facts of God's law and God's righteousness, and he is only in search of and only desiring to share the truth that is there. Then they say, Last thing they say is you got to conclude with a memorable phrase, a memorable sentence, or a memorable anecdote at the end of your closing argument. 
And we're going to see in a minute Paul does that in verses 19 and 20. He follows this model, although he's not in a courtroom. Allow me then, if you will, to read Paul's closing statement as it is recorded in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And here it is. Paul says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. But we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp, you got to be real careful when you say that. Got to take your time. <laughs> Watch the tongue right there. <laughs> <laughs> the venom of asp, he almost messed it up, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is Paul's closing argument. Here is the argument that Paul is making. Paul simply saying this, Mankind generally thinks of themselves as good, but that's not true. All of us are guilty of that. We generally think of ourselves as good, but Paul says that's not accurate. That's not an accurate description. Actually, every man, no matter who he is, is a sinner before God. That's Paul's argument in a nutshell right there. That's what he says in 1, 18 through 3, 8, and even here in his Perry Mason moment. That's what he says. He says, all of us are no good. <laughs> Isn't that something? Now, I know that's not, a, I know that's not funny, but I'm trying to lighten because I told you it's tight today. We're getting there, though. Let's come back next week, all right? So, 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 so help me out. Just, we, we're going to try to add a little humor when we can because this is not a tough one. This is not an easy, one to, easy pill to swallow. Paul says, none of you. <laughs> Even me are no good. He says it in Romans chapter 7. He says, he says, even when I would do good, evil is always present with me. The good that I desire to do, I find myself not doing. And the good that I want to do, I can't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's what Paul says. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul says, I'm included in that. Then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. Yes, but here he's making the argument that none of us are any good. That's his argument. Up to this point, Paul has argued as he starts in 118, up to this point, uh, he has argued from creation. He's argued from conscience. He's argued from reason and logic. 
And he now closes his case by arguing from Scripture. He's arguing now from Scripture. Uh, this is a final call for self-examination. That's what it is. It, it, it's, it's a mirror moment. A mirror moment. You know, James likens the word of God to a mirror. In James 1.23, he likens the word of God to a mirror. And this closing argument and this section in Romans is a mirror moment. It, 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 it presents itself. It, if one looks in the mirror of God's word, here's what happens. One will come face to face with the truth because the mirror don't lie. Mirror is brutally, brutally honest. Even the mirror in your house, it don't lie. And I know that's kind of, that, you know, that's my vernacular. I know it's, you're supposed to say it doesn't, but that just doesn't have the same punch. You know, I like to say it don't lie. Isn't that good? Do some of y'all, do you recognize that? It's questionable whether everybody actually recognizes the fact that the mirror don't lie. It's even questionable that, uh, that, that, that some people even look in the mirror before they leave home. <laughs> I'm just saying. I ain't, I ain't messing with nobody. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, the, the tag that they have in the store that says one size fits all. Brothers and sisters... I'm just saying, that's not, all, that's not true. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe the hype. Look in the mirror. And when you look in the mirror, listen to what the mirror says. Because I promise you, before you get there, before you step in front of it, you're thinking, man, I'm looking sharp. I'm looking fine. Right? All you have to do is step in front of the mirror, and the mirror will tell you the truth. And we ignore. My wife said, go on past that. I'm just, I'm, I'm just in my Perry Mason moment. Listen, the mirror, the natural mirror, will do the same thing. Because as the word of God, because when you look in the word of God, it will cause you to do an inventory and an examination because the word of God will present to you the truth. And James says you cannot look in it and then leave from it and then forget what you saw in it. That's what James says in 1, 23, 24. He said don't look in the mirror of God's word and then the, as soon as you walk away from it, forget what it told you, forget what it showed you because the mirror Paul says in his closing of God's word, does not lie. Everybody got that? Do I need to stay, spend any more time there? Uh, let, me just, let me just say this. Look in the mirror before you leave home. <laughs> Sometime I look in the mirror, I got, I got stuff going on. Like, man, I'm sure glad I stopped. Stuff ain't right, you know. It ain't <laughs> Help me preach it, sister. <laughs> so we got to do that, right? We got to do that. The mirror is brutally honest. So in verse 9, in verse 9, Pope Paul opens with the question. He says this, he says, what then? That's how he opens this, this, this closing argument. He says, he, says, he says, what then? This question he asks in, 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 verse, in verse 9 uh, looks back on all the evidence presented in 118 through 38. 
What then? It, it's an opportunity to look back. It, he asked this, what then? He says, right? Uh, also, though, in this verse, we don't just get this opening question that causes us to look back. He also, in verse 9, gives us, hidden within this verse, he gives us the actual theme of his summation. It's just one small word, but it's the theme of everything he's getting ready to say from this point forward. In fact, it kind of goes back to everything he's already said. The theme of his close is one small three-letter word. It's all. That's the theme. That's the theme of what he's, he's preparing to share with his readers. This word, all, oh, it's the theme. In fact, he uses this word or, or a variation of this word or a phrase related to this word 11 times in verses 9 through 20 because in verses 9 to, through 20, he says things like none, not one, no one, all, not even one, every mouth. The whole world, no human being. He uses those variations of this. And so what he's saying is that this is everybody. Notice I left the V out of that. It hit everybody. Nobody can escape what Paul is talking about. The, the, the theme is all. Oh, it, it is for you. It's for me. It's for the Jew. It's for the Greek. It's for everybody. It applies to all. So then in verses 10 through 18, what Paul does is to bring this out and to illustrate it, he quotes from Old Testament scripture. Let me give you a little, a little, a little hint, a little clue. Anytime you see in scripture, it is written. Anytime you see that anywhere in scripture, you can go even to when Jesus was being tempted by the enemy in, the, in, his, in his time of fasting in the wilderness. He uses the same phrase. And when he uses the same phrase, it, it's the same, it applies the same way as Paul applies it here. Anytime you see it is written, it is a textual marker for scripture. It says that I'm getting ready to tell you something that's already in the word. And so Paul, he says, it is written, and right after that, he begins, Dorothea, to quote Old Testament scripture. He begins to quote, to make his case, he begins to quote Old Testament scripture. This whole section moves between several of the Psalms. It moves to Ecclesiastes, it moves to Isaiah, and it can be broken up into four parts. And I give them to you real quick. Four parts of Paul's clothes. Here it is. First part is sins against God. It's in verses 10 through 12, sins against God. Uh, First thing it says in verse 10 is, none is righteous, no, not one. Paul picks this up from uh, Psalms chapter 14, verse 1, and from Ecclesiastes 7.20. Can I read, read what they say? Uh, Psalms 14.1 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. That's what Psalm 14 is. Paul picks up part of that in, in the opening of his closing argument. <clears throat> no, no, none is righteous, no, not one. But then he moves to Ecclesiastes 7.20, and in Ecclesiastes 7.20, Solomon is thought to be the writer, and he's at the end of his life, and here's one of the things he says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We're talking about the chief sinner who's come now over the, over, the, over, the, over the years of his life and has come to the end, and, and, and he has declared that none, not even him, is free from sin. 
So God says of the sinner that no, no, no one, no man has the ability to produce righteousness. This is what Paul, this is the point Paul is making. Nobody, none of us has the ability to produce righteousness. Here's how Isaiah puts it. Isaiah says of this subject uh, in Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah says this, but we all, we are all as an unclean thing and all of our righteousness are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Simply put, none of us are righteous. Paul says it. He says to prove it, you have to understand the context. He's, he, he, he's writing to people who, who are well-versed in the scriptures. In fact, the Pharisees had a, had a habit of every time they wanted to make a point, they would string several scriptures together to make their point, and Paul is simply stealing their method. And he's stringing together several of the scriptures that they know by heart. They don't have to look them up. They know them by heart. They have them memorized. And he's using their own, uh, the, what they have hidden in their heart against them. He strings it together and he says, none is righteous. And then in verses 11 and 12, uh, Paul continues in Psalm 14. And he moves to verses 2 and 3 in, in 11 and 12 of, of Romans chapter 3. And this is what he says. In 11 and 12, he says this, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He borrows this from Psalm 14, verses 2 through 3, and then Psalm 15, verses 1 through 3. And there in Psalm 14, 1 through 2 through 3, this is what it says, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. Psalm 15, 1 through 3. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend? Paul borrows from these Old Testament scriptures to prove a point that no one, first of all, nobody can fully comprehend who God is. Nobody can, can understand the depths of who this God is that, that we've been called to serve. Nobody can get there. Isaiah says it this way. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are from the earth are my thoughts and my ways from your ways. Nobody can really fully comprehend and understand an all-powerful and an all-wise and an all-knowing God. <laughs> thank you. Nobody can fully understand. I'm all right. Thank you, though. Nobody can fully comprehend and understand God. His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are far beyond ours. And, 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 and Paul says to those who were, were, were reading his writing, listen, this applies to everybody. Nobody can fully understand God. Nobody can comprehend him. 
And not only that, but there's not a single person in the world who will seek God if left to himself. Nobody is born with the desire to seek him. We're all born in sin and shapen in iniquity. We're born in this world with the sin nature and there is nothing in us that has a desire for him. It, 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 it happens as he moves by his spirit on the heart of the lost person and draws that person to him. Nobody seeks to make God the center of their life. Nobody does that, Kimmy. And so Paul simply says this, all of you religious Jews, all of you folks who who think yourself righteous, all of you who think you have the oracles of God, all of you who are judging and being hypocritical, even you don't seek God. He's making his closing argument. He's making his point. And then he moves on. Here's what what happens, though. In verse 12, he says this. He, he, He says this in verse 12. He says, we can't do anything that merits God's favor because of our waywardness. We are wayward, and because of that, we can't do anything that merits his favor. It's like what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 6, when he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and God has laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. All of us are wayward, and because of that, because of that, we don't merit God's favor. But then secondly, as Paul deals with sins against God, he moves on to sins of the tongue. Sins of the tongue in verses 13 and 14. And here's what he says in verses 13 and 14. He says this, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Man, does that remind you of anything? I need to drink some of this water because it's really getting ready to get tight right in here, so... I need to make sure I can talk a little bit. Does that remind you of anybody? Hopefully, it doesn't remind you of yourself. Paul says their throat is an open grave. He he, he borrows this from Psalm 5 and 9, Psalms 10, 7, and Psalms 140 and 3. Here's what it says in Psalms uh, 5 and 9. For there is no truth in their mouth, Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. What it says in 5.9. And then in 10.7 it says this. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. 1.40 and 3 says they make their tongue sharp as a serpent. And under their lips is the venom of asp. Paul says this. Sin has impacted our speech. This, this, this curse of sin that we, that, that we all come here under has even impacted our, our speech, by the way, is important because one's true character is revealed when one opens his mouth. Jesus says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you have to be careful, very careful what you say because when you open your mouth, it reveals what's down on the inside. 
And, and, and you may try to hide it, you may try to mask it and all of that, but you can only do that for so long because at some point, the truth is going to come out. You keep, that's why it's so good. James says, uh, 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 be quick to listen and slow to speak. You should not want to talk so much because the more you talk, the more you have to be careful about what you say. Isn't that right? And so we have to be careful because the heart, the, the mouth reveals what's in the heart. And so Paul says this about our speech that's been corrupted by sin. He says this, it smells like a rotting corpse. He's not talking about <clears throat> halitosis. <clears throat> that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the aroma that comes from the, from the venom that comes from some folks' mouth. Have you ever listened to, I mean, just... You know, just hang out and listen to folks with not, with, without them even knowing that you're around. It smells, he says, like a rotting corpse. It's filled, Paul says, with deception. It's like deadly poison. You have to be careful what you say because it can be poisonous. An asp, see how slow I said that, Was a, is a venomous cobra that can kill you with one bite, one bite, and one injection of its venom. And we have to be careful that our words don't become that. Because word, once they get out there, you can apologize all you want. You say, I'm sorry, all you want. But it's very difficult to unring a bell. Once you've said it, it's out there, and it can be poisonous. He also says it can be violent. In fact, sin has caused our speech to be violent and bitter. And we have to be careful about that. Then he moves on. He deals with sins of the tongue in 13 through 14. And then in 15 through 17, he deals with sins of the feet or our actions. First, he deals with what we say. Now, he turns to dealing with what we do. <laughs> he says this. And he says this in, in, in 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. He borrows this from Isaiah 59, 7 through 8, and here's what it says. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation, and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Proverbs 1.16 is another place he borrows from. He said, and it says this, For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. The passage in Isaiah that Paul chooses to use in Isaiah, Isaiah, what's happening is Isaiah is saddened because of the apostasy of Israel. And because of this apostasy that's happened time and time again, righteousness is far from them and it cannot approach them. And Isaiah says these words to them because of the apostasy and because of how they have treated God. And so then Paul decides to use this passage to describe the readers in his current day and their actions as it relates to those actions that the people that Isaiah had written to uh, were, 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 uh, were doing the same thing. Now, watch this. Not only does it apply to the people in Isaiah's day, not only does it apply to the people in Paul's day, uh, I stopped by to tell you some more bad news. It also applies to us. 
It applies to us. Uh, it, it says that, that the feet are, are quick to run to evil. Uh, bloodshed, misery, uh, and the absence of peace is what this passage describes. Peace can only come uh, when one knows Christ. And for the most part, there's no desire to have this. No desire for it. That's what Paul is saying. There's no desire for peace. Um, has to be, so our actions, Paul deals with, our actions. And then lastly, for all of this, he gives a reason in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, he says this, uh, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the reason for everything we just read. No fear of God. He, he borrows this from Psalm 36.1, and here's what Psalm 36.1 says. Trans, transgression speaks to the wicked. Deep in his heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes. No fear of God is the reason for all of what he's just described. From 1.18 to 3.18. No fear of God is the reason. Fear of God is, is defined as a reverential awe, uh, a specific sense of respect and submission to God. And Paul says this is the reason for all of that. And then in 19 and 20, this is the memorable phrase at the end of Paul's summation. 19 and 20 says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul simply says this, because of the law of God, uh, God condemns all the things that man is guilty of. Man stands condemned by the law. The law has the ability to show us just how wicked we really are. J.B. Phillips says this about it. He says, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us just how crooked we are. Then in 20, Paul says, God gave the law to man as a tool. It was given to show man that he was a sinner and to drive man to Jesus Christ. It is, he is our only answer is to be driven to Jesus. This was the purpose of God's law, to drive us to Jesus. Listen, this is a tough passage to take in. It's even a tougher passage to give a conclusion for. It's tough to wrap this up. It's tough to make you leave here feeling good. But you know, that's what I like to do. So I had to figure out a way how. So I borrowed a couple of quotes. First one is from Warren Wiersbe. Warren says this about this passage. The best way to close this section would be to ask a simple question. Has your mouth ever been stopped? Are you boasting of your own self-righteousness and defending yourself before God? If so, then perhaps you have never been saved by God's grace. It is only when we stand silent before him as sinners that he can save us. As long as we defend ourselves and commend ourselves, we cannot be saved by God's grace. The whole world is guilty before God, and that includes you and me. That's what Wiersbe said. 
But I love, I love what Copernicus says because when I hear Paul's closing statement, I'm led to feel the same way that Copernicus feels. And Copernicus says this, and I feel this way. He says this. He says, I do not ask for the grace, for the grace, God, thou didst give St. Peter, nor can I dare ask for the grace which thou didst give St. Peter, but the mercy which thou didst show to the dying robber, the mercy that thou didst show to the dying robber, that mercy show me. Because, because I'm like that dying robber, show that to me. And Paul's closing statement should lead all of us to feel like Nicholas Copernicus. Show me that mercy because I don't really deserve it. Let's pray, Lord, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for your word that is tight, but it's right. Thank you, Lord, that you give us what we need to take it and make it. Help us, Lord, to see who you are and to surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. There may be someone today that's here that know Jesus. We want to give you and extend you an opportunity to surrender your life to him today. If you're here and you'd like to do that, would you raise, raise your hand, stand, acknowledge yourself, and we'll have someone to come and pray with you so that you can enter into the fullness of joy that Jesus provides. Anyone? Anyone? Then, there may be someone here that's been, been dating us. Dating hope. I'm gonna date them for a little while. <laughs> it's always a good idea to date before you get married. You don't want to just get married on the first date, brother. Is that right? Am I right about it? Amen. <laughs> but there's some here that's been dating for a while, and it's also not a good idea to keep dating forever. Because <laughs> she's gonna get upset and impatient. <laughs> not that we're gonna do that. We're going to be here for you. But I just said, I'm, I'm being funny, but if there's someone that's been dating us and been coming and you would like to unite with Hope Bethel Hope and make Bethel Hope your church home, we want to give you that opportunity now. Would you acknowledge yourself, raise your hand, stand, come forward, whatever you'd like to do, and we'll have someone to share with you what happens, what needs to happen in order to, to, to do that. Anyone? I'm going to give it a couple extra minutes because I had somebody last week say, boy, I almost... I met with, the, with someone after Sunday, and they said, I almost, we're going to do it, brother. So they're not here today. I can talk to them, but I'm not going to give you that name. <laughs> <laughs> All right, nothing else? Good. Well, praise the Lord. We thank you. Don't forget everything we've said that's happening. Don't forget City Fest. Please don't forget to be a part. It's going to be a great opportunity and great experience uh, in our city. Uh, don't forget the faith walk. We need people also to volunteer that man the booths for the faith walk from Hope. We're going to have a booth set up, and we need people from our church to man the booth and ship. So don't forget, see Dennis for that. Uh, if there's anybody here that needs private prayer, personal prayer, we have a prayer team. Dennis and Donna Dorothea is here. 
They'll take, they'll go and pray with you for anything that you have a need after service. See them. Dennis is here. Uh, Donna is there. Dorothea is there. Wave your hand. They're our prayer team. They love to pray with you after we uh, issue and offer the benediction. If there's nothing else, then let's pray and prepare to be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We know, Lord God, that it's not always comfortable, but it's always what we need. Thank you, Lord God, for what you're getting ready to show us in 320 through 31, 21 through 31, about your grace. But we also thank you for reminding us of our standing before you apart from Christ. So now be with us as we prepare to depart. Go ahead of us, Lord. Make the way clear that no hurt, harm, evil, or danger will be able to overtake us. And now unto him who's able to keep us from falling and present us faultless before his glory, with, before his presence with exceeding joy, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever.